Hi, this is Vivica. Thanks so much for listening to the Quilting Arts Podcast. Not only is this an episode that Susan and I think you'll really enjoy, we have a special treat for you. As soon as we wrap up our conversation, you'll get to hear an interview that Ginger from the Quilt and Tell podcast did with Andrea Sang Jackson. Andrea is a textile artist and quilt designer from Nova Scotia, Canada, who has a background in design and architecture. She'll tell us how she has used that background to design quilts and why she works with Spoonflower to develop her business. Spoonflower is a global marketplace connecting makers and consumers with artists worldwide, revolutionizing the textile industry through on-demand digital printing technology and eco-friendly, sustainable, and scalable manufacturing processes. Spoonflower's happiness guarantee, if you love it, we love it. So stick around for an interview with Andrea Sang-Jackson right at the end of this episode. It's all presented by Spoonflower. Welcome to the Quilting Arts Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the world of contemporary art quilting. I'm Susan Brubaker Knapp, and I'm here with my co-host, Vivica Hansen-Denegri. Hey! Hey there! I hope your day's going great, Susan. It is. It is, except we're getting a lot of heat here in North Carolina. Connecticut's pretty close behind you. I think we're at about 84 degrees, and it's the morning, and it's stuffy and oppressive. It's one of those days. Here comes summer, right? Yeah, exactly. Just in time. Just in time. I don't know. I've started putting away my sweaters, washing all my sweaters and putting them away because I know that we're not going to need them this summer. Just have a feeling it's going to be pretty, pretty crazy out there. But I've been spending a lot of time in my garden. have to say it's been amazing gardening weather. So I don't mind it being a little bit warm and sunny as long as my plants are loving it. And they really are. I've been in other people's gardens because <laughs> um, I, I mostly just have ferns in mine. I'm trying to get a lot of ferns growing, but um, I've been hanging out at the North Carolina Botanical Garden. And the other day I went to the Arboretum, which is part of UNC's Botanical Garden system, but it's the part that is on UNC's campus. And it's funny because when I was a graduate student, I just kind of wandered. It was near the the journalism building and um, they have done a major overhaul and reworking and it's just beautiful. And my friend Margot um, is the curator there. So she took me through and showed me a lot of the specimen plants and trees and uh, it was so much fun. Really that great. That sounds wonderful. You know, whenever I travel, which hasn't been lately, but whenever I travel, we always go to the botanical gardens and the arboretums. And uh, a couple of years ago, my husband and I went to Scotland and Edinburgh and Glasgow both had incredible, incredible, Incredible botanical gardens. And I have to say, it's it's really one of the joys of being outside is to be able to go to places and seeing just how artistry can also be done in nature. You know, yes. you don't have to be doing it with art. Well, actually, it still is art, isn't it? But you don't have to be doing it with a pen. You don't have to be doing it with a sewing machine. You don't have to be doing it with fabric. Art is art, no matter where it is. Yeah, but I am finding so much inspiration in the botanicals. I've been loving your ferns that you've been putting on Instagram, Susan. Tell me about how you're making those. 
I'm doing most of those pieces with whole cloth painting. So I start with prepared for dyeing fabric and I'm painting the whole surface and then stitching it. And um, I'm, I think I'm going to do a whole series of about 15 that are all based on native plants from this area. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. You know, that native plant thing is pretty important too, because of course a native plant houses native bugs that are beneficial. Mm -hmm. Some aren't, but some are. And, uh, you know, we all know how important that is. So preaching to the choir, I'm sure. But I've I've learned a lot about that here because the Chapel Hill gardeners are very much into that and trying to make sure that our pollinators are well fed because we've lost so many species. When you look at worldwide, how many species of birds and and mammals and insects and amphibians and reptiles, it's amazing how many have been lost. And if we all planted more native plants and used less pesticides and used more organic gardening methods, um, we'd all be a lot better off and our world would be a lot better off. So I was listening to a YouTube video because that's what I do um, <laughs> on birds. And it's not just the number of species, but the the number of birds within individual species that are down so much. Mm. And I think I was, there was some incredible number, Susan, and I'll, I'll misquote it if I try, but it was almost like, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, there were millions and millions more birds of our, you know, normal species. And I went outside this morning and it was a cacophony. It was so loud in my yard. We have a lot of birds around us, but I can't imagine what it would have sounded like or looked like if the population hadn't been so affected by what we're planting, what we're mm-hmm. feeding our plants, et cetera, um, and how we're building, because I know that that has something to do with it. But. Yeah. I mean, we're lucky to live in neighborhoods where there's a lot of trees and a lot of nature around us. But, you know, think of all the new developments that are being built and basically everything gets ripped down so they can build the developments, you know, and then they plant mm-hmm. a few other trees. So yeah. unless we, you know, people in those neighborhoods come back in and plant some of those native species and redo those areas so that there are, you know, places for the birds to want to be, then it's not going to happen. But what's funny about it too is, is uh, we had a tree come down because of a lightning strike, which is a totally natural thing to happen. And the, it's almost like a, it's probably 150 feet by 80 feet. Uh, we have mm. a, uh, you know, suddenly have a field next to our house and it's amazing how fast all of that, land was repopulated with native plants. You know, they yeah. just grow because that's what they're supposed to do. And my husband was saying, well, maybe we should plan something here. And I'm like, no, why don't we just let the butterfly weed uh, come yeah. and naturally come in here? So we're just, you know, it's almost an eyesore right now, but I'm trying to get my head around the fact that it's not an eyesore. It's actually a natural field and it's how natural fields are built. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's funny how, um, although we're artists, and everything. We are so influenced by all of this stuff that's around us, by the science that's happening in our own backyards and the plants, et cetera. It's, it's interesting that you and I both are, you know, knee deep in it. Well, I think, I think artists and artistic and creative people seek out beauty and plants are a big part of that, you know, and the, and the creatures that inhabit our, our environment. We look at those things and we love those things. We're passionate Mm -hmm. about those things. We are. And, you know, as people 
it's it's sort of fun to think about how we're not single-minded, that although we're artists or although we're writers or our role, although we're scientists, we don't have we don't have a single path that our mind takes. We have so many different interests. And um, one of the things that I'm working on right now is I'm planning a camp quilting arts in my backyard. I've done this ah. a couple of times. I couldn't do it last year because of the uh, pandemic, but I am so excited that two of the artists from Quilting Arts TV are going to be taking their Airstream and coming to New England. And they they called oh, me up and said, fun. can we do something? And I'm like, we can do Camp Quilting Arts. I'm so excited <laughs> because the, the mandate, the mask mandate um, has been lifted for outside. And even, even so, we'll probably wear them. But anyway, so I'm inviting a handful of friends over and having these friends come and um, work in my backyard and do some fun things, which you'll be seeing because it's at the end of June. So you'll probably be seeing a blog post or two about it. But um, I'm just so excited to get together and do something fun outdoors and fun with my friends. Will there be s'mores? That's the main question. If I have s'mores, are you going to jump in a car and come? Because I will do it. I will do it. I hadn't planned on that. I haven't planned the menu yet. And no poison ivy. Those are my rules. You have to have s'mores and no poison ivy at camp. Uh, we have no poison ivy on my property because my husband goes around like with the microscope <laughs> like or a magnifying glass. And he's like, how can I get rid of the poison ivy? Because he knows he'd be getting rid of me if uh, if there is because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm allergic. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Well, that sounds really fun. fun. Yeah. And, um, and I know you've been doing some fun things too outside of your studio. You had an art exhibit, I believe, an outdoor exhibit. Yeah, the outdoor exhibit went really well, and it was fun, and I think she's going to do it again next year, so I'll start thinking. Uh, That's really great. Yeah. That's really great. Well, you know, because all of us seem to have these different ways that our mind move, um, one of the things that I am working on that is not Quilting Arts related right now is our winter issue of Quilting Arts magazine. And months and months ago, I had uh, planned all of my themes ahead of time for what we do in the next cycle of magazines. And I usually plan four to five magazines ahead. So as you know, it's just part of my job uh, as the editor. And so I came up with the theme of science and art because mm. it's it's um, it's actually related to my friends that uh, live close by and are part of my art quilt group. They have such wonderful backgrounds. And I love being the dumbest one in the crowd because, uh, you know, we'll all get together and one of them, uh, you know, teaches math on a college level. Actually, two of them are mathematicians. Um, one of them is a, a hoity-toity lawyer somewhere. And another one is a professor at Yale. And, you know, so there, there are just so many people with so many different interests. But what is always enthralled me is that there the thought process that goes on behind it and um when i was thinking about quilters art quilters specifically there are so many art quilters i know that have a scientific background yes whether it's a background in biology or it's a background in chemistry several are bench chemists and so Mm -hmm. i thought wouldn't it be an interesting thing to talk about how science informs our art and that is what our conversation um, with Shannon Conley, our artist in residence um, for this particular podcast. That's what I'd love to chat about. So let's take a quick break and come back and talk with Shannon. Sounds great.
Let me introduce you to today's artist in residence. Shannon Conley is an art quilter in Moore, Oklahoma, whose work is informed by her experience as a cell biologist. She is an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine, where her lab is focused on understanding the mechanisms associated with age-related diseases in the eye and brain. She's particularly focused on understanding how molecular and cellular changes in the aging blood vessels contribute to the development of cognitive impairment and dementia, as well as age-related macular degeneration. Ideas for her quilts often arise from scientific research from her lab or others. Sometimes the link is obvious, such as pieces depicting biological specimens or topics, while other times the link is more indirect. Much of her recent work is focused on interpreting the diversity and interconnectedness of various ecosystems, largely focused on the dry mountains and high desert of southern New Mexico, where she grew up. Shannon uses both traditional quilt making techniques as well as non-traditional sculptural approaches to make her pieces. I met her through SACWA, where she is active regionally and as a member of the board of directors for SACWA. Welcome, Shannon, to our podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Vivica and Susan. It's great to be here with you today to talk about something that makes me really excited and sort of share my enthusiasm for science and art with a broad listening audience. Well, Shannon, you know, you seem to be the perfect person to bring in for this conversation because as we all know, you know, we're not single-minded as individuals in what we think about or do. I don't just think about quilting and you don't just think about science, quite frankly. Uh, we all know that. But I thought it would be so interesting to talk about how science and art intersect, not just in an individual's life, but so so much more broadly. Science and art have, have been bound together since the beginning of time. What do you think is the reason for that? Why is it that scientists and artists have so much in common and often dabble in both? Well, I think a big part of it is that um, both science and art are driven by creativity, by creativity in thinking and by creativity in how we approach things. So that's a, a technical approach or an experimental approach or a, you know, artistic approach. So I think that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect that I think is really important and has especially been important historically is that science communication, whether that's with the larger world or even within your scientific discipline, relies on our ability to describe things well to others. And historically, that's involved a lot of artwork. You know, before we had cameras on our microscope, what did we do? We painted what we saw through the microscope. Before we had microscopes at all, what did we do? We drew pictures of what we saw when we were out exploring the world. And so I think, um, you know, science communication has relied heavily on art and artistic interpretations ever since there was such a thing as scientific exploration. You know, I hadn't really thought of that before. I hadn't thought about how, how you know, without a camera, obviously a scientist would have to do that. But often I think that um, artists sometimes will find themselves in this, this separate room and they think that they're the creative ones and, and other people aren't. But you're totally right that scientists have to think differently about exploring almost everything that they do. And, you know, when, when I think of, you know, some of the most amazing artists, like you think about Michelangelo, for instance, he had to actually do some autopsies basically to figure out how those muscles went together so he could put together a sculpture like David. So really back to the masters and well before art and science have been together. 
I think one thing that really links artists and science together is that they both pay great attention to the details. They have to look very closely. Um, scientists have looked so closely that they have those electron microscopes they can really see. And, you know, I love looking at those pictures because all I can see is, ooh, this would make a great quilt. <laughs> but yeah, it, you know, we both look at the details. Yeah, and I think not just looking at the details, but observing critically what mm. is there, what is important, you know, what is true or real. And I think, um, you know, for, for a scientist, it's, you know, you're trying to figure out of all the things that are going on here, what are the things that are the most important for the process or the question I'm asking, you know, for an artist, we have artists that, uh, you know, are very photorealistic. They really want to capture all of the details and also artists who are really trying to just extract, you know, sort of the essence of something and maybe taking mm. a more abstract approach. But in all cases, what you're doing is really observing carefully to, to sort of not just look at something, but really see what's there and, and interpret what is the most important for what you're trying to accomplish. So in your own work, where do you think you fall? Are you are you someone who you feel, because I mean, I have my thoughts about this, about your work, but I'd love to know your thoughts about your work. Are you the one that looks really, really closely at the detail or abstracts? You know, so I think I, I have done a lot of pieces that are intended to be somewhat photorealistic. I mean, not photorealistic. I, I don't do anything that's photorealistic, but that really are intended to capture um, identifiable for example, subcellular structures. I have a lot of those pieces hanging in my office and, and I have faculty colleagues that come in and say, oh, look, you know, there's a, there's a centriole or, you know, there's a microtubule or, or whatever. But I think I've really evolved over the last few years to um, trying more to capture the essence of a place or the essence of an, an object, the feeling of it. And I think my work has sort of evolved to um, less trying to just you know, capture something like a photo and more to how whatever the subject matter is, um, scientific or otherwise, intersects with, you know, my personal journey or, um, you know, whatever theme I'm trying to work towards. Can you tell us a little bit about that personal journey? How did you start? Why did you start? Well, I've always been creative and crafty and I never really was a quilter, but I always loved fabric and color and I didn't think I could draw. And my mother, who is a scientist and an artist as well, and is an art quilter, she learned about art quilting through a sort of side story. She also was always artistic, but never into quilts. And both of us just fell in love with the ability to um, create artistic things with fabric. I mean, there's just like so many colors and so many prints and, you know, I could make things and I didn't have to draw them. And of course, now I sort of realized that like, you know, I probably can draw a little bit and, you know, we can all move on with that aspect of, you know, self-doubt. But um, just the tactile nature of fabric and thread is just so attractive to me and all the bright colors are so attractive to me. But almost immediately, my very first art quilts were inspired by science, by the natural world. And, you know, because those are the things I care about and I'm interested in, you know, and I started off with um, the things that I was encountering or the things that I thought were really cool and have sort of evolved over that time to a more thoughtful approach rather than a, you know, oh, that's cool. I'm going to make a quilt kind of approach. <laughs> Well, you know, your mom is just an amazing quilter too. We should mention Vicki Conley. And it's really nice because uh, that you have that connection with your mom too. I know my mom was an incredible um, needlewoman and I know Susan's was too. I wish all of our moms could have met 
because I think that they would probably have just as much in common as the three of us do. It's it's really, really so fantastic to have a maker in your family that can influence like that. That's a fantastic thing. I think it's a real privilege too, because, you know, she and I are able to bounce ideas off of one another. We, we share this um, love for art and this also appreciation of sort of how the world works with that scientific background. And it's been really fun over the past 15 years to watch our artistic styles grow. We share a lot of similar inspirations and yet our styles are very different. And so it's fantastic. It's almost like it's almost like you've grown um, in parallel ways, but your your artwork is very different. And you know they're both astounding. You know both of you have an astounding uh, body of work too. That's that's really really wonderful. But one thing I've noticed too is that um, you like three D. You like to use space. I do like to use space. And I actually think this is sort of a third area where scientists or people, and I, when I say scientists, I want to be really broad in that interpretation, mathematicians and engineers and, and researchers of all types. Um, because I think one of the things that my sort of scientific background has led me to be is a bit braver, willing to try new things, willing to explore mm. technologies. And I think that's something that um, quilters are, are really good at. I mean, think about things like the rotary cutter. I mean, no one would think of that as a scientific thing. That's a technological thing that really revolutionized our, our ability to make art quilts or quilts in general. So there's this sort of technology side. And, you know, my work with 3D came out of a desire to, to create shapes and forms. And I just thought, well, you know, it's just like any other experiment. You don't know how to do it at the beginning. You kind of make a plan and you try it and you see what works, you know? And and I think that sort of spirit of experimentation is something that's really familiar to people who have um, a kind of a research background. All right, let's just take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hi, it's Vivica again. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Quilting Arts Podcast. I wanted to remind you to stick around at the end of this episode as Spoonflower presents a special interview with author, educator, and quilt designer, Andrea Sang-Jackson. She'll talk to my colleague, Ginger, from the Quilt and Tell podcast about how she uses digital tools to design quilts, keeping in mind the way that quilts integrate into our lives and why she works with Spoonflower to develop her quilt design business. Spoonflower is powering the creative economy by giving makers and consumers like you a chance to support an independent artist with every purchase. Spoonflower likes to say, if you can dream it, we can print it. With over 1 million designs curated from thousands of artists worldwide, you're sure to find exactly what you need for your next do-it-yourself project. So remember to stay tuned at the end of this episode for a special interview with quilt designer Andrea Sang-Jackson. Brought to you by Spoonflower. Susan, do you do 3D work at all? I've just done a couple of pieces. Um, I did one fairly recently that had the small little silk balls and the you know big pieces that had holes cut in them. But it's not something I'm real comfortable with. So I found it interesting that she made that comparison with you know, the scientists 
Because I think in a lot of science classes, you are taught to kind of model things to create, you know, whether it's a model of the solar system or a model of a cell or you're working in 3D, like dissecting and things like that. So maybe more comfortable with three-dimensional things. And also a lot of your three-dimensional work, Shannon, seems to be very organic. I can see flowers and the folds of things are very organic. Yeah. And I think one of the things, you know, I, um, I love calling myself an art quilter because even though I don't make traditional quilts, there are a lot of things I really love about traditional quilts. And one of them is the repetition and pattern that you see so often in traditional quilt making. And that's something that I also see in nature, right? Repetition Mm -hmm. of forms and, and shapes. And so, you know, my shapes are more organic than maybe a traditional quilt block, but that repetition, I think is something that I'm very attracted to aesthetically and that I like seeing in nature and I like putting in my work, particularly in the three-dimensional work. So when I look at your pieces like High Desert Garden or or Twining, what I'm seeing is the wind on like a desert dune, something like that, which has that repetition in it. But what I love is that you're really a fiber engineer for these pieces. And you're a traditional quilt maker, a sewist in these pieces too, because like if I look at twining or high desert garden, what I'm seeing is, what's that technique called? Smocking. Thank you. Smocking. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we think of smocking as something that our grandmothers did. And I guess a lot of people think of quilting as something our grandmothers did. But, but smocking is, in this case, it is so sophisticated. And it's not just the fabric, it's it's that texture that you get with that really gorgeous fabric. It's really fun to, to try this. I love that connection to sort of historical or traditional um, sewing approaches. I mean, I would never claim that this is a new thing, but it has such a different and new look when you apply it to a painted, quilted quilt and on such a large scale. Mm. And when I work on these pieces, it's been really you go back to this this um, spirit of experimentation because I can't tell you how many times I smock these pieces and the pattern is wrong or the scale is wrong and I just snip all the stitches in the back and mark a new grid and do it again you know because it's it's very unpredictable right what works on a single layer of really tiny fabric doesn't always work on a thick quilt sandwich on a much larger scale and so you know, and there's no, there's no guide, right? There's no like cut your block this big and then stitch it together. It's like, well, I wonder what will happen if we, you know, use a grid that's three inches or four inches or two inches, or if I use this stitching pattern. And so it's, you know, it's just trial and error. And almost all of them were stitched and then unstitched and then stitched again, unstitched. <laughs> and isn't it interesting because I think scientists are very comfortable with failure because that's what they do over and over and over again try, 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 fail, 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 fail until you finally succeed and you figure something out. And quilters can learn a lot from that approach because a lot of people are, I think I've encountered a lot of perfectionists when I, in, among my students when I teach. And I always tell them that's, you got to get rid of that right away or else you're never going to, you're never going to play with things. You're never going to try new things. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I wish more people appreciated about science outside of the the research world is how much stuff doesn't work and you just you have to try again. And and certainly I think that quality of persistence and fearlessness is really useful when you're trying to do something new and different. 
And I like that it's not so precious too, you know, that you can't go in and snip it in the back because I remember when I was in college, I did a, I did a lot of pottery and I would never fire something unless it was right. I would, I would throw a pot, look at it, throw it back in the, you know, back in the slip bag because it's, it was just not right. And, and, you know, we have to do that. You have to do that in any kind of art. And, you know, allowing yourself to practice or to find the right way, you know, how many, how many discoveries were made by accident in medicine? How many discoveries were made by accident in art? A lot. Yeah. Well, I, I have to say the only piece of yours that I have seen in person is Listen Louder Than You Sing, which was in the Threads of Resistance exhibition. So I got to see it right up close. And I'll let you describe it a little bit, but I love both the message and your construction techniques and the workmanship is fabulous in that piece. Can you talk about it a little bit? Sure. I started doing pieces with open work, I don't know, about 10 years ago now. And I really like the transparency that you get. Um, I like cutting holes in things. Kind of ties <laughs> back to this idea of things not being super precious. And so Listen Louder Than You Sing is one of the more recent examples of that. So it's a, a painted whole cloth quilt in which I've cut out um, letters that read my American experience is not all American experiences. And then they're stitched over with quilting. So it's almost like a network of thread that provides connection across the surface of the quilt. And then on top of that is superimpose the words, listen louder than you sing. And that's a phrase that our choir director is always telling us in choir to listen louder than you're singing. You know, the whole choir will sound better together if you're listening to everyone else. And so I think um, this is something that's really important, I think, in America today, but also in all of our interactions with one another, that, you know, our diversity of experiences is much richer if we can listen to each other. And I feel like this is also something that's really relevant within the scientific community where, um, you know, everything goes better or is more rich when we can work as teams, when we can take advantage of the expertise of others, when we can listen well to one another and progress is predicated on um, working together and listening to one another. It's just such a beautiful message. And I have to tell you that that phrase, listen louder than you sing, has stuck with me. And I tell it, I say it to myself when I think I'm talking too much and not listening enough. And so thank you for that because um, I think that'll be with me forever. Well, I'm glad it was, I'm glad it <laughs> touched you. And um, it's, yeah, certainly a message that I can afford to take advantage of. <laughs> well, Mike, my, my one question about the construction on that is when you did the thread work, you went across the painted surface and then did you have like a stabilizer in those open areas and you mm -hmm. kept stitching across the stabilizer? Is that how you did it? Yeah. So all of, all of my pieces that have this kind of open work, um, the shapes are cut out before the stitching. The The background of the quilt is quilted first. Right. And then the letters are, are quilted. And then the stitching that goes over the open spaces. And I've done these in a whole variety of, of quilts. I use a water-soluble stabilizer behind so that you can stitch across it and you can get um, – otherwise the sewing machine just eats up the thread. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay. I've not done that before. So I'm, I'm trying to learn the technique and maybe I'll experiment with it myself. Yeah. Yeah. It's, sometimes you have to glue if you have pieces that might stretch apart. Um, you know, you have to adhere them somehow to the stabilizer. I use like water soluble glue stick and stick it all down and then you can quilt it. And then when you soak it in water, all of that is, you know, removed. 
Very neat. It's just another way that technology just has made our life so much easier. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. You know, from the rotary cutter, which some engineer probably yeah, had to come up with for some purpose. And who would have thought that it would have influenced our lives so much to this glue, basically, which is, you know, the water soluble stabilizer and the, you know, the stuff that we use for fusing our quilts. These are all ways that science has informed what we do and influenced what we do. But, you know, you mentioned too, that you're part of a choir, which um, I've been part of choirs too. My mom was a choir director, but uh, religion has some uh, influence as well on the work that you do. And um, we saw uh, both Susan and I had marked in our little uh, list here, we saw this beautiful prayer book that you had um, embroidered. It, it's really, really beautiful. Do you want to tell us about some of the liturgical work that you've done? Yeah, um, I'm an Episcopalian and I've always been an Episcopalian. And that's a sort of branch of mainline Christianity that has a fairly progressive approach to scientific um, thinking. But it's been sort of a long-term interest of mine how to sort of fit together um, a genuine spiritual belief with, you know, a, a scientific understanding of the world. And I think that's something that's really valuable to me. And I think it's really important that um, or at least what I think I would like people to know is that is that Christianity and um, spiritual beliefs in general are not inconsistent with a scientific approach to understanding the world and a way of thinking about the world around us. I mean, I, I think in, in my personal view, um, God gave us these wonderful minds to use to think critically about the world around us. So I've been exploring in my art for a long time pieces of the liturgy, that's our worship service in the Episcopal Church, and in several of the pieces I have sort of incorporated this scientific background. So one of them uses our, our Eucharistic prayer, which is one of our pre-communion prayers, but the theme for me was about, about evolution and sort of joy in the natural world and in, in God. God's creation. And so I had a lot of fun building that piece. You know, it looks like an illuminated manuscript mm -hmm. with, you know, fancy um, golden letters with the words of this prayer. But in the borders are um, depictions of life at various stages of evolution from, you know, the trilobites during the Cambrian explosion and stromatolites when it the Earth's atmosphere was first being formed with oxygen, and it was really fun to do a lot of research. And then inside the illuminated initials of that piece are some of my favorite scientists, um, including ones that will be familiar to most people, like you know, Madame Curie and Galileo, but also um, more modern scientists like Barbara McClintock, who was a very famous geneticist in the middle of the 20th century who did fantastic work that has really informed a lot of our modern understanding of, of molecular genetics. And so um, it was really important to me to incorporate um, that sort of scientific approach to the world in a piece that was very much about worship and joy in God's creation. Well, thank you so much for sharing that because, you know, there are some beautiful, beautiful quilts here. I'm going to link all of these quilts that we've talked about in our show notes too. So just in case people are interested in seeing some of these images, because it's always fun to listen, but it's really fun to be able to go and click and find what it is that we're talking about too. There's so much to look at in, in that quilt, especially that you want to see the details. It's amazing. Just out of curiosity, um, you know, this last year and a half has been challenging and different. It's been challenging professionally, I'm sure, for you to be working, um, I'm assuming, sometimes in person and sometimes remotely. Has any of the pandemic changed the way that you're doing your art? 
or has it influenced any of the pieces that you've been working on? It has. I mean, I think like probably most artists, I have my pandemic quilt. It's actually a, a sciency and religious quilt as well that talks about how we stay connected to one another. And I also think I've been doing much more handwork during the pandemic, not because I didn't have access to my sewing machine, but because one of the things that I've discovered about being on Zoom meetings is that I, I can knit or embroider. <laughs> that embroidered prayer book you referenced was one I did during Zoom meetings. And I think also the quarantine period or or just the period of isolation, even when we were in formal quarantine, sort of makes you think a little bit more about things that are important. It's just sort of a mental reset. And so I think that's been really valuable for me. Mm-hmm. I think it's been valuable for a lot of us. And I know um, what I love about Zoom is that you can only see from my shoulders up and I am constantly knitting during these meetings. I'm not knitting right now. I'll, I'll show you my hands. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, it's it's amazing what you can get done. And I actually have what I called my Zoom knitting, which is a probably nine inch wide scarf that is just just columns of knits and pearls. So I can, I could like, I could walk on a treadmill and do this. So not that I do, but you know what I mean? It's, it's nice to have your hands busy and the, the handwork that you do on your quilts, obviously between the smocking and the embroidery and the, you know, finishing techniques, all of it is there. It's just beautiful. So I'm glad that you found that. Your piece, You Will Be in the Midst of Them, is really a beautiful tribute to the upside of the pandemic. And I fell in love with it because it's a tree and I'm a big tree lover. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose the tree as that symbol and the wording in it and why you made the piece? Well, that is my pandemic quilt. So Mm. it's fun that you um, landed on it. It's one, the tree, of course, for me is, is a symbol of just connection, right? You know, trees Mm. connect all the way down into the earth and then they, you know, come up and they provide shade and beauty and oxygen. And it's, you know, you were talking at the beginning of the podcast about your love of plants and I have a long love of plants. And I actually think that's the history of science and art is is botanical illustration, but we won't get sidetracked. But I think one of the things that, you know, I was thinking about along with many others in the pandemic was this idea of connection and how do we stay connected? And it turned out that, that Zoom was it. And so shortly after we all became really isolated. My family started twice weekly, you know, prayer services and then chat. And as a result, I've actually seen more of my family during the pandemic than any other time. You know, my grandmother is 93 and she gets on Zoom twice a week with us for for prayer services. Now she gets on Zoom and she plays bridge with us. And so, (laughs) you know, I'm missing people in person, but it's just been really wonderful to see some of this extended family more often. And the words that are on that piece are part of one of our prayer services. And they really speak to me because they talk a lot about connection and in particular about how we don't necessarily need all of the traditional formal ways that we normally connect to one another to have that spiritual connection. So um, there's a line in there about how whenever two or three are gathered together, you will be in the midst of them. And so as we lost access to traditional ways of interacting with each other, it was sort of um, important for me to realize that like we could continue as a community, even when we had to be apart. Hmm. Well, I know that some recent research has suggested that trees communicate with each other too. And that is super cool to think about. 
it is super cool to think about and, and, and how they also communicate with the sort of symbiotic organisms that live in the mm-hmm. soil with them. And I don't know, there's, it's really cool. I'm not a botanist or um, a dendrologist, but there's really trees are, yeah, sorry. I'm going to nerd out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. That's cool. So, so Susan, I shared a book with you. Um, it was from Rob Walker, The Art of, The Art of, The Art of Noticing. The Art of Noticing. That's what it is. Sorry. And one of the things that he talked about, uh, and I, I saw it more on his blog, I haven't finished the book yet, was how trees actually, when they grow, their branches don't always necessarily touch at the top, that they have an individual shape, each one of hmm. them. And I'm seeing that actually in, um, you will be in the midst of them and, and the shape of that particular thing, but that you can, that they can communicate to such an extent that tree number one on the, on the right is telling tree number two on the left, don't get in my space, (laughs) which I just think is like the most cool thing, you know, like, and I can look up my window right now and I can tell despite having a pretty packed forest across the street from my house, those trees aren't necessarily touching. But mm-hmm. I, I do sort of wish, though, that I could reach out and give you both a hug. This has been such a great conversation. It has. It's been, it's been such a, an interesting thought to think about how we're all connected. And although our tree branches might not be physically touching right now, that we can communicate through the Internet and we can com- communicate through our art in just ways that are absolutely astounding. Yeah, I love talking to you and hearing about the connection with science and art and religion and all those little tendrils that you've put out into different interests in your world, Shannon. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's been a blast and I I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's been a pleasure. And I just feel like my connectedness has just been, you know, expanded by the whole conversation. Thank you again, Shannon. And I am so excited about sharing this conversation, not only with our listeners, but sharing in a, in a new way, in a different way in the article that you're going to be writing for our winter magazine. So everybody keep your eyes and ears open and we'll definitely be sharing this conversation with our readers as well. Thanks, Shannon. Thank you, guys. You know, I think it's such a privilege to have so many contacts within this industry, Susan, uh, who who really have a thoughtful approach to their art quilting. And I'm, I'm really glad that Shannon wanted to be a part of our conversation today. Yeah. You know, so many artists bring all the little parts of their world into their work. And that's what makes it so fascinating and so diverse. Not only just the the personalities, but their interests and their jobs and what they want to say. And how beautifully they say it. You know, not only only is she just an incredible scientist, but she's also such a well-spoken person promoting the art quilt. Mm -hmm. And she's so talented. You know, the the work that she does is is absolutely unique. And I know that those two words should never go together. As an English major, <laughs> I know that they're unique is unique. But her work is is really incredible and incorporates so much more depth and thought. It's just really astounding. So love it. Love it. Yes, she was a fabulous, interesting guest. And during our conversation, there were there were so many times that I was like, oh my goodness. So I wonder if she remembers that we have a quote at the end of 
every episode of this podcast. And I'm like, I could have just quoted things that she said and put it in the end and said, here's our quote. And it's from Shannon Conley. But why don't you tell me what quote it is that we're going to be sharing? So this is a very famous scientist, Albert Einstein. And he said, art is standing with one hand extended into the universe and one hand extended into the world and letting ourselves be a conduit for passing energy. So I love Einstein. I think, you know, obviously he's an incredible physicist, but he also is able to put into words what I can't. And I can actually visually see that happening. I can see someone standing. Actually, I can see Einstein standing there with his white lab coat and his crazy hair Mm -hmm. (laughs) saying that and extending both arms. But I also think about how poetry fits into that. And I think about how painting fits into that. And I think about how art quilting fits into that. And I think about how you and I sort of fit into that as well when we do our podcast, because here we are, we're just, you know, we're sitting in different parts of the world and having a conversation and hoping that we make that kind of connection and pass that kind of energy on to our listeners. Yeah. And holding hands with all of the listeners who are out there too. Kumbaya, Susan. Thank you so much. See, we've come full circle back to that camp idea again with Kumbaya, right? Okay, we'll add that to the list. I'm going (laughs) to report on that camp. And uh, maybe we'll all stand hand in hand and sing Kumbaya. But uh, that that was great. Good talking to you today, Susan. You too, Vivica. Hi, it's Ginger from the Quilt and Tell podcast. Spoonflower is pleased to bring you this interview with quilt designer Andrea Sang-Jackson. While you're listening, be sure to visit www.spoonflower.com to see all the quilting substrates in their marketplace. Now, as promised, Spoonflower presents my interview with Andrea Sang-Jackson. She's a textile artist, a quilt designer, author, educator, based in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, and she's a Spoonflower ambassador and a really amazing follow on Instagram. Hi there, Andrea. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here today. Yes, we are so excited to have you here today, so I'm just going to dive right in. Tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and what kind of work do you do? So I do a lot of things. As an artist, I think we are used to wearing many hats. I create quilt designs for other quilters to make. I teach technique and design as well with quilters. But I also have an art practice that is more exploratory. I've worked in animation recently, collaborating with a weaver and I've collaborated with musicians on art projects, as well as I am my own business development team and marketing manager. So there's a lot of things that I do as an artist. So taking all of that and having that background, how did you get involved in quilting? Like a lot of people, we turn to quilts to mark occasions. So first babies and weddings. And so I was expecting my first baby in 2011. And through my design and architecture background, I thought I had the skills to design my own quilts and make this quilt for my baby. And so I did. And I didn't know anything. I was pretty naive about everything, but I managed to make a quilt and it's still a quilt. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't fallen apart. That's good. (laughs) And so with my second baby and my second quilt, I discovered a bit of my voice. I started using more solid fabrics and taking an approach that was decidedly modern. It was not a traditional grid of blocks with sashing and borders. It was a lot freer in terms of its Even though I was still using square blocks and I was using a traditional hourglass block, although at the time I had no idea what that was, but I really felt that there was something I could say in this medium. 
It's so funny. It's interesting because I have met so many quilters through the podcast that have, you know, engineering or architecture type backgrounds. How do you think that influences uh, when you're doing quilts? I studied architecture in a time where we were turning to digital means to design. So I'm very fluent. I guess I would call myself a design digital native. I grew up in my adult years learning to design on the computer. So this is very key to the way I work and drafting and understanding geometry mm-hmm. and form is really key to the way I design quilts. Also, I really do think about quilts in spaces and how we use them, how they might hang on a wall, how they might drape on a bed, and how they integrate into our lives in a very practical way. At the same time, kind of reflecting your personal style as well as holding meaning for you. Yeah, it really seems like a great way for somebody who has that engineering type mind to be artistic. Yeah, it it really makes it easy to flow from an idea to uh, a tangible thing. You know, sometimes we can have these bright ideas and inspiration, but translating them into a physical form, there is a sometimes a block there. But having the tools to use and the way to make that shift is really helpful. Let's dive into your business. Give us a short little synopsis about your business. So I started designing quilts in 2016. I made a set of gemstone wall hangings, which are very geometric. When I was showing them for the first time at a local craft show, I mentioned architecture or that had an architecture background. And people were like, oh, I definitely see that in the way that she quilt. The geometry is very strong in visually in my work. So at that same craft show, actually, quilters were coming by and asking if I had patterns to sell. And so the following year, I released my first gemstone patterns. And then from there, I wrote a book on the same topic with Lucky School Media. And from there, I decided to continue to design patterns because, again, drafting the patterns and understanding how quilts go together was pretty natural to me. An architect designs something, comes up with an idea, designs something, but doesn't actually build it with his or her own two hands. They are coming up with instructions, verbal instructions and diagrams for somebody else to build something. And that's exactly what a quilt pattern is. I'm not there to help you make the quilt. I have to make sure my instructions are clear. The visuals are clear so that I am setting you up for a successful quilting experience that you will enjoy thoroughly and enjoy the quilt or gift it to somebody who really appreciates it. So besides having the geometric shapes with the gem designs that you do, the colors are just amazing too. How does color play into all of that? That's a really funny question because I have this dual color personality, I find. I really tend towards neutrals for myself. So if I am decorating in my space like the the most color I go towards is like navy which is not (laughs) much of a color I do like gold as well and and, and, um, mustard yellow but in terms of my own personal style in in my life I that's what I tend towards is like neutrals and navy and, and yellow but in my quilting I find that color has such a way of speaking to people on such an emotional level it can bring us joy it can bring us happiness it can evoke sadness. And so I really like delving into the theory of it and also helping people to understand how to use color with confidence in the way that they quilt. So in the gemstone book, I talk about transparency and how to achieve those effects and kind of in a logical way, but also understanding that some people can come to those conclusions intuitively. And then other people really need very formulaic ways of thinking about color to be able to achieve the effect that they want. 
And so it's really through teaching that I explore a lot of color because I really do think that anybody can put together a good color palette or a good fabric pull if they have the right steps to follow. So, you know, it sounds like you started out as a hobby almost. And then how has that matured into something that you really are enjoying and making a living off of? When I started designing patterns and when I had my first craft show, it was a very focused effort that I did want it to be an income. It wasn't a hobby once I started doing that. And so I took that quite seriously. And I was thinking about what it would take to become a full-time artist and a full-time designer and, and this be my entire job. And I worked towards that. I think that, you know, there hasn't been a path that is very straight. I take on projects that I want to take on and feel passionate about. And that's kind of my business plan. It's, it's not a very good business plan. I would not recommend it to anybody. But at the same time, <laughs> in terms of the freedom that I have to control my time, to take on projects that speak to me, and be able to continually evolve as an artist and learn and grow is really what takes priority and leads my business. So you're a Spoonflower Ambassador. Well, one, tell us a little bit about how you became a Spoonflower Ambassador and then explain Spoonflower because it really is kind of a different experience when it comes to fabric. So Spoonflower is a different kind of fabric company. You can search their marketplace for any sort of surface pattern. So if you are really interested in cats, you can search cats and it will populate probably thousands of designs of cat fabric. And then you can have those printed on several different substrates. So if you are a quilter, then you might be looking at quilting cotton. If you are a quilt artist, you might be looking at something like a chiffon or even a lawn and something, some other substrates that might be of interest to you. If you're an interior designer, you might be looking at some upholstery fabrics or heavier weight fabrics. So basically you're telling me is that I can have a quilt, a upholstered chair, and an outfit that all match. Correct. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I love yeah. just the thought of that. <laughs> and so there are thousands of artists that upload their designs and you have this marketplace that is huge that you can select fabric designs from and have them printed on the substrate that you want. I first worked with Spoonflower as a company in 2019 when I was launching a new pattern called Striped Scallops. And Spoonflower was launching their petal signature cotton. And so we partnered for that launch. And I got to design my own fabric for the first time in a repeat pattern. Before that, I had worked with their fabric uh, as wedding invitations for my sister-in-law and brother-in-law. They were handkerchief wedding invitations. And then I also worked on some, some baby blankets for my, my friends. Uh, but this was the first time it was in a quilt and I had got to design the fabric. And so I took my sketches, scanned them and put them into a repeat pattern again with the design background. It wasn't too much of a leap for me. And then in 2020, Spoonflower approached me. They were launching this new ambassador program and I had a really great time working with this company. Their values are aligned with mine. The idea that printing fabric on demand can be more sustainable than uh, some traditional ways of producing fabric. You're only getting the amount that you want. You, you don't need to produce, you know, 3,000 yards or, or whatnot. And then also their commitment to diversity was also really important to me. So this was a really good fit, and I had been thinking about Spoonflower and wanting to work with them for a long time. And so this was a great opportunity for me to be able to push myself into a new audience and also pull people into quilting 
and Spoonflower and how to use that platform and use the Spoonflower products to achieve something that they're really happy with. And especially like I think that with quilters, we are a type of people that are quite sentimental and generous. And when we make things, we want them to be special and meaningful. And with Spoonflower, I've been able to make very special quilts for people. I am making one coming up in the summer with a group of friends, old friends, but they want to make a baby quilt for a friend. And so they're going to make drawings and uh, I'll have them printed at Spoonflower and I'll make a special baby quilt for one group of the friends. It really does seem like it's a great way because quilts are such a personal thing, when, you, especially when you're gifting them. But to be able to have fabric that you've designed, I think it just takes the whole thing to a whole nother level when you're able to do that. Yes. And I think that, you know, even if you're not designing your own fabric, at Spoonflower, the marketplace is so huge that if you, let's go back to the cat example, if you have a friend who really likes cats, you could find so many different cat fabrics, which you could, at the store, you could find maybe a couple at a time. Right. But you could really be like cats. I'm going to search cats. I'm going to search yarn balls. I'm going to search pet paraphernalia. And mm-hmm. you could you could really go go deep into a theme. Yeah. No, it just feels like it's a place that, you know, not only are you going to get a wonderful looking project that's really unique, but you can feel really good about it because of the, you know, it is much more sustainable. And, um, you know, it, it does. There's nothing when you go there, you're definitely going to feel good about the product that you got. So tell us a little bit about your aesthetic, because you had mentioned that you were a little more modern. Do you dabble in art quilting as well? I do. And I don't know if I art quilting might be the right term because art quilting evokes something in a visual in me that may not necessarily speak to what I do. The way I would explain the work that I do in art would be that I produce art that is quilting and textile related or inspired. And so, for example, I have made works that use a quilting design, like a double wedding ring traditional pattern but in a completely different format that is on silk with cut up wedding dresses. So it's not a quilt. It's not a functional quilt, nor would it be, I don't, it wouldn't be, it's not layered. It is layered, but it's not stitched and layered like a quilt would be an art quilt would be, but it is textile art. So it's like quilting adjacent art, if that's a term that I could use. And so I'm working on a public art project right now that will be custom printed a chiffon that will be photographed and then applied to a building. So transmuting the idea of what an art quilt is or what textile art is, those are all very loose definitions for me. And using tools at Spoonflower to be able to produce the vision in my head through the tools that I can use with Spoonflower printing is really, really great for my art practice. And what is the best way for people to find Spoonflower and then also to look up more information about you? So online, you can go to Spoonflower's website, spoonflower.com, and you can find them on Instagram at Spoonflower. And me, Andrea Sang Jackson, you can find at thirdstoryworkshop.com or on Instagram at thirdstoryworkshop. Can I just say, I was a Spoonflower sent me some of your fabric, and not only does it feel amazing, but it's just so beautiful. So thank you so much for that. I, I, it was a nice little surprise when I got a package in the mail and I had uh, the, the fabric to play with. So I'm really looking forward to playing with that. Have fun with it. Yeah, I will. Well, thanks so much for joining me today. And I can't wait to go check out more stuff on Instagram. Thanks. Thank you. Visit www.spoonflower.com today. 
Whether you're ordering $5 swatches of our various quilting substrates, or you're ready to take the plunge and purchase yardage for your next quilting project, you'll find exactly what you need in our marketplace. Be sure to check out one of our newest substrates, Cotton Lawn, ideal for quilting projects. Visit www.spoonflower.com to learn more. That's spoonflower.com. And thank you for listening to the Quilting Arts Podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts. Our show notes with images, links, and descriptions and more are available on quiltingdaily.com. Today, our producer is Chad Franzen, and our web producer is Sarah Erickson. See you next time.